Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we have a very exciting topic to talk about, which is crypto and DAO M&A. Obviously, M&A is something that is well-established and well-analyzed in traditional capital markets. But in crypto, it's still pretty nascent. There are only a handful of examples. And really, it's still a pretty nascent area compared to, to the decades of and hundreds of, of years of history we have in, in traditional finance. So we're starting to learn a bit more about how this will work in crypto. There's a few examples we can point to and analyze. And I think there's no, no two better people to talk about this with than our guests today. So we're bringing on Jordan Stastny and Sam Bronstein. They're 2x investment bankers in traditional finance who are now sort of straddling the line and, and focusing a lot of time on, on the crypto side. So yeah, I'll jump right into it. And yeah, Jordan and Sam, really great to, to have you guys on. Yeah, great to be on. Thanks for having us. And just to give context, like, could you guys give a quick introduction about yourselves and your backgrounds and what you guys do now? Yeah, sure. So previous careers for me was, was in M&A investment banking at Catalyst. Catalyst, it's a technology-focused investment bank that mostly does sell-side M&A advisory. So worked on the sales of Slack, the sale of LinkedIn, Qualtrics, and a number of others. And Jordan and I had worked together for a few years at Catalyst, and we had kind of been looking for something that we could do together, something more entrepreneurial. So we had left earlier this year and were spending time trying to see what sort of opportunities existed in M&A advisory for crypto and was doing my nightly stretching and was listening to an old episode of Bankless that was talking about the tribe Rari merger and kind of just had this aha moment where it was pretty interesting how similarly the transaction was structured to some of the public equity deals that Jordan and I had worked on at Catalyst. And so I called Jordan and I was like, I think that this is what we're going to focus on. So we wrote a piece on the merger. We did you know, an analysis on the exchange ratio and we've been off to the races since then. Awesome. And I guess, Jordan, do you want to give a quick intro on yourself as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started my career not at Catalyst. Sam has only ever had only ever worked at Catalyst before we kind of launched our own thing a few months ago. Prior to working at Catalyst, I actually started my career at Citigroup in their technology investment banking coverage division. Ended up moving primarily into M&A after about 12 to 18 months there, and then decided to make the jump over to Catalyst about coming up on three and a half years ago. And so that's where I met Sam. And focused primarily on the buy side of M&A while at, at Citigroup. Obviously, had some opportunity to work in capital markets as well. While at Catalyst, all, all we did was, was M&A and primarily sell-side M&A. And, so, and a lot of public sell-side M&A, to Sam's point. So that, that, is, that is what was primarily what was kind of driving our, our interest in crypto, was trying to apply a lot of the same concepts we had there you know, in this space. What's been really interesting to me as someone who has been in the crypto space for a while is as the market is maturing, the skeleton of the market and the market structure does sort of resemble the structure of the traditional capital markets. And I'm just curious, you know, and I think a lot of our listeners are curious, like what function, and this is a really kind of finance one-on-one question, but what function do investment banks hold in the traditional capital markets? And hopefully that'll give our listeners a taste of where investment banks, what they may look like in the crypto market as well. So I think actually... Contrasting my my two different experiences, I think, is the right way to, to think about it. So that in traditional finance, there are what are called bulge bracket investment banks. And they're banks that generally they have a consumer arm and a balance sheet, and they focus on servicing the capital markets, whether that be equity capital markets like IPOs or debt capital markets like bonds or a mixture like convertible bonds, what have you. And then they also have an advisory arm. Many times they have a research arm. They have a number of other functions. And it can kind of muddy up. The relationships that they have, there can be some conflicts of interest there. Sometimes you're you're not just you know advising on a deal, you're also financing the deal. A lot of times you're helping a company go public, and then eventually you're helping them buy someone, and eventually you're helping them sell. I have a hard time imagining that being the traditional. I can that that kind of traditional look at things, that being how it will be applied in crypto, and primarily because of kind of the advent of boutique advisory firms in traditional finance. And so that's when you look at something like Catalyst, where 
where Sam and I work, Catalyst was simply M&A. And the thought process was, you know, you have these giant banks that are very, you know, have a lot of relationships and a lot of products. And there, there's a lot of kind of competing interests and you specialize on one particular side of things and, and you can provide better advice and, and higher quality advice. And it, it's something that kind of solves a little bit of that conflict of interest. And so I would imagine that there will be some similarities like that in crypto where you'll have people that are going to be specializing. But I, I imagine there'll be a lot of things that are different as well. Yeah. And, and I think just to double click on that point, like when you look at a bulge bracket bank that offers a number of different products, for example, let's say that you're advising a company that's getting sold. So you're providing sell side M&A advice. Well, let's say that you work with Microsoft and you do a bunch of debt financing for Microsoft and the company that you're advising on the sell side is selling to Microsoft. Well, there could be a conflict of interest where you don't want to, you know, piss off Microsoft because they might be a future client of yours. So that's an area where bulge brackets might have a conflict of interest where a pure play advisory firm isn't going to have their advice be clouded by potential financing fees from an acquirer. Totally makes sense. And I think that sort of leads into the next question, which is, I think the original focus of this podcast was like M&A, but obviously investment banks like do a, a ton of other functions, some of which you guys mentioned, like how closely do you think some of these other functions map over to crypto protocols? Like obviously the actual service and the result is different. I think just like the way that some of these services can be provided can be done in, in an entirely on-chain, like automated potential manner. But like, how do you think about the different ways that, that these services will actually end up looking in a crypto way? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I think that there are a lot of different, and I, I obviously kind of preface this by saying I'm a bit biased given I'm historically an M&A banker. So I'm, <laughs> and that, that's kind of primarily the advisory that, that as Sam and I look to where we're going to kind of fit in a space that's likely where we are going to begin spending a lot of our time. So that being said, I think that traditionally there are a lot of functions in banks where banks are viewed as their brokers by definition. That's how they're viewed. They're, they're kind of middlemen. In a lot of cases, even in the traditional world, there are beginning to be questions about whether or not they provide as much value as people think. So like an example of that is in the IPO markets, we've started to see over the last couple of years, the advent of the focus on, on direct listings, which is effectively saying, instead of going to your traditional banker and having them go and place your capital with a bunch of institutional shareholders, you're instead going directly to the markets yourself and you're not having to pay them a fee and you're not needing to necessarily underprice your capital for the institutional shareholders so that you know they go and offer your offer your equity to. So that's an example of, of any, the traditional world changing on its own. I think what is interesting about crypto is that while I think a lot of crypto markets, to your point earlier, are beginning to mirror the way things are done in traditional finance, because I think that people are beginning to realize, okay, well, this is why it was done like that all along. There are still plenty of inefficiencies that can be stripped out more quickly by simply needing to just bypass them altogether. So I think when it comes to raising raising capital, that could be an example. I think as it regards M&A specifically, I have to imagine, and Sam, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I have to imagine that it will mirror very similarly to traditional markets. Because at the end of the day, it is important to get these things right. It is important to be able to maximize shareholder value when you're thinking about large transactions like this or token holder value in the case of crypto. And it's important to have an advocate to make sure that you're that you're doing it correctly. And so while there are some kind of capital, more capital market stuff that I could see being fairly different in the crypto world, when it comes to kind of strategic advisory, I still think that there's going to be a pretty big part to play there. Yeah. And I think something that's interesting to think about is in a typical M&A deal, you have a sell-side advisor and a buy-side advisor from an M&A standpoint. And right, the sell-side advisor advises the seller, the buy-side advisor advises the buyer. Right now, if you look at you know, just Ferrari as a case study, the advisors acted more as neutral intermediaries to broker the transaction. And my guess is that as the space evolves and matures, you would start to see M&A advisory mirror more of the TradFi world, buy side and sell side. But right now, and maybe for the foreseeable future, you just have one neutral intermediary to broker the transaction. So that's kind of one one thing that that I've thought of on the space recently. And going into Ferrari, 
you guys wrote a really, really great piece on sort of that merger and, and sort of looking into the fairness and some of the pricing and just some of the other dynamics. Do you want to, for those that haven't read it, do you want to give a quick summary of, of the piece? Yeah, absolutely. To Sam's point earlier, this was obviously like our, our kind of launch point into crypto and it and candidly wasn't even, <laughs> wasn't even that long ago. The summary of the piece, I guess, just to give some quick background on the deal, that was a, a deal that came together fairly quickly. I think that was one of the first things that we noticed was how from the time that it was, and Sam, you should obviously keep me honest here, but I, if I'm not mistaken, from the time that the deal was kind of brought to the communities and was actually executed, I believe it was around a month, which is pretty quick for a, a deal to happen in a traditional finance world, which I think is really great in, in a lot of ways. I think there were a couple things that jumped straight out to us. Some stuff that was really, really fantastic relative to, I think, your traditional finance deals and others that were pretty interesting and I think created a, some opportunities to, to improve upon. So the, the first thing we noticed was that there wasn't a whole lot of diligence in this deal. In a normal deal, you have, you know, do a lot of back and forth between the each management team sharing, you know, sharing things about their about their product, about their communities, about the way that they run, or teams rather, and how, how things work. That's a huge hurdle to get over. I think that that's something that didn't necessarily happen here. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's, you know, products are obviously all all open source. It's a lot easier to diligence, things like that. So that, that, that was one thing off the top. I think that the thing that we focused on the most on that piece, though, and this is where bankers, because bankers come in and they do a few things. They, they help facilitate that diligence process. They obviously help, to Sam's point originally, broker the deal itself, which can be, you know, obviously is, is fairly valuable. But a, a huge part of it is, is helping founders and teams understand what is the proper value of of the equity that they're selling, just to make sure that they actually feel like they're getting it right. So the way that we kind of looked at this deal initially was okay like this is a this is a publicly these are both publicly traded DAOs you know the market has kind of spoken so to speak on what these governance tokens are worth and they're swapping them they have you you pick a swap rate at which you're the rate at which you're you're swapping your tokens and it effectively is a price it's a price in both DAOs relative to one another and so we went through and we applied a lot of the same concepts that we, we would apply in a traditional finance sense looking at how they traded historically looking at when the deal was announced when it was originally talked about how you would go about measuring all those different things and just, just to see kind of what the exchange ratio would come out to. And so what, something that we noticed as we started going through that process, just kind of in the background, this is why we decided to write the piece on it, was simply that there were some, what I would call missteps, or I would characterize as missteps as it regards to the calculation, the exchange ratio. And I think it, it highlighted the need for a third-party advisor to help broker these things. And whether that's as a third-party intermediary or whether that's you know multiple advisors advocating on either side, that's, that's I think to be determined. But that was, that was kind of our thought as we started looking at it. And that, that's kind of what we tried to focus on in that piece. Yeah. And I mean, I think what's so interesting about M&A in the crypto space is you can kind of look at tokens as the analog for publicly traded equity, right? There's a lot of similarities. So on one hand, you can take a lot of the principles that would apply to a typical public company M&A deal as it relates to valuing the token, structuring the deal, etc., on the other hand, there are a number of differences. You know, you have the IP is all open source, which can change the rationale for a deal pretty materially. There is the more democratic nature of DAOs. And, you know, in a typical public company deal, you have a board of directors that theoretically represents the shareholders, and they're the ones that vote. And I think you can look at the Twitter saga that's been playing out recently with Elon and see, you know, there's some negatives to that because there's a bit of a disconnect between the representatives and the shareholders. But with the DAO, it needs to be voted on very democratically. So I think that it's cool because we see there as an opportunity to, you know, work with projects that want to do M&A and kind of write the playbook for how these deals get done on chain. And so you look at a deal like Ferrari, and I think that what we were so impressed by was, you know, the fact that they had the, you know, cojones to do it and put a framework out there and, and let people react to it. And I think that each subsequent deal that gets done in the space will build upon the previous ones. And we'll eventually get to a point where who knows how long it will take, but you look at sort of typical public company M&A and there aren't really new structures that get created, right? The structures have been fleshed out over decades. And that's where we expect this space to go. And I think we're in, you know, inning one, out one. So there's a lot of 
a lot of room to go, but it's very exciting. Circling back to what you guys spoke about earlier, I mean, one one thing that I've been hearing you guys say is is conflicts of interest and independence and stuff like that. And you know, my experience in the industry has been that because it's such a new industry, a lot of the traditional regulations just have not caught up. And as a result, you know, the concept of shareholders and the board going after and getting the best deal for the company, for the shareholder, you know, those those are concepts that really haven't propagated in the crypto space all that much. And obviously over time they will, but at the moment it seems like we're still early. How much of the the functions of an investment banker is to kind of provide the the compliance element to to management on both sides? Yeah, I mean it's interesting, right? Because you look at in every public company deal, the board of directors is going to contract an investment bank to provide a fairness opinion on the transaction. And that is not really related to the advisory, so to speak, on advocating and negotiating with the other side. It's actually just like a legal cover your ass move. Because if the shareholders sue the board of directors for transacting a deal that they don't think is quote unquote fair, they can point to the fairness opinion that was provided by the investment bank and say, oh no, Goldman or Catalyst or whoever, they said this is fair. That's why we did the deal. Now, something that Jordan and I have talked about a lot, you know, right now where the regulation is in the space, there isn't the shareholders litigating a delegated board around the fairness of a deal. But by the same vein, something that we think could be really interesting is a neutral third party opinion on the fairness of the transaction so that folks in the community can feel comfortable when they vote on it. One thing I want to touch on is like, obviously, when you look at any kind of M&A, the price is the thing that stands out. And again, from an outside, I haven't like not an insider and in, in haven't done banking, but like to me, the price kind of feels like a zero sum thing where it's like at the end of the day, you have to pick something and there's like a winner and a loser. Is that a fair sort of assumption? And in addition to that, like I'm sure there's a bunch of other areas in MA where like it's not zero sum negotiating, it's positive sum, and there's actually ways to improve certain terms or parameters for both sides. Like, what are some of those those things that a neutral third party can can help really help both sides understand and get get to the same page? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that I mean MA to a certain degree, to your point, is always going to be zero sum. Like there's particularly as as it regards again, we can continue to look at Ferrari as an example. The analog to that is a kind of stock for stock transaction in the traditional finance world. And so at the end of the day, the, you know, the holders of, of tribe phase governance token versus holders of RGT, Rari's governance token, like those holders are going to hold some portion of the, of the combined entity. And so it is, it is like definitionally zero sum in that like if they split it 50-50 or they can split it 55-45 or what have you, for one to own a greater portion, the other one has to own a, a less of a portion. So it always is going to be zero sum. I think that what, what makes public M&A interesting in a traditional finance sense is that you have you have market prices? You have a bunch of you know you have you have entities that have you know all these these different reporting they report and they're regulated to report by the SEC. They have to disclose all this different data about them, and so you, they trade in a way that is considered to be fairly efficient. And so you you have kind of a starting point of like their market price, and then you can kind of work from there. And so in crypto, I think it's going to be similar in, in some ways, like you have obviously like market prices that you're going to be working from. And I think that was, again, primarily our, what our critique was on the deal was, was making sure you stay true to those market prices. But I think one thing that's going to be really interesting to see is as DAOs get larger, as crypto becomes you know, more and more a piece of, of everyday life, I would have to imagine that the reporting is going to have to change. And I think that's both in terms of how DAOs are traded, but in M&A context, it's even more important because I think that that's to, to get back to your kind of original question of where an advisor can be really useful. I think it's twofold. It's to make it, make sure that you're okay. Like, are we being true to the market? Are we, are we looking at the market prices and the movement of those market prices? Are we making sure that when it comes to how this combined entity should be split from an ownership perspective that we're doing so quote unquote fairly? 
But the other piece of that is to actually get under the hood more financially and to take a look at this and say, okay, if these two companies are going to come together and they they trade this way on their own, and there's going to be some certain amount of synergy or some certain amount of of kind of additional value that's created by this combination, how do we measure that? How do we value it? And how do we split it up? And in a traditional M&A context, you have multiple advisors that kind of fight back and forth and negotiate on behalf of their clients and you, you land somewhere. In this context, it, it may end up being like that. It may end up being a third party. It doesn't matter. But I think the point is that M&A very much is a zero-sum game. And you need someone to be able to not only read the market and make sure you're being being true to it from a standalone perspective, but also take a look at from a combined perspective, what is the value that's being created and how should that be divvied up across the communities? You do need to make a decision there in terms of you know, what the combined ownership actually looks like. You know, during my DCG days, I got to work on a few deals where we, we acquired a few companies. And almost always, the hardest part was, was the qualitative stuff. Like, you know, is there a good relationship between our management team and their management team? And who's reporting to who? What are the titles? Has everyone agreed on the roadmap? In my experience on the Dow to Dow side, like having seen some of the deals, there's very little consideration given to the actual qualitative stuff. Like everyone focuses on the actual terms, the price, right? The ratios, but very little credence is given to, hey, do we agree on where this combined entity is headed? Would love to hear you guys chat about that. You know, you, you've seen so many deals go wrong and so many deals go right. What are the qualitative stuff people need to consider when doing deals? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that at the end of the day, the qualitative stuff is what makes a deal work in the long run. You know, the deals that we've seen work the best are ones where the founding teams or the exec teams have gotten to know each other over a long period of time. You know, they started out maybe doing commercial partnerships together and the commercial partnerships worked so well that they wanted to increase the level of integration through M&A. And that's something that shouldn't be lost in the DAO world, right? There should be strong industrial logic for a combination. You know, from a cultural standpoint, are the communities going to, you know, are the teams or the core contributors, are they going to work together well? Do they have the same vision for the combined company? You know, these are things that are if those aren't yeses, if those don't give you kind of the right check marks, there's no amount of math that makes a deal worth doing. The math is sort of like the secondary piece of this to where the strategic rationale for a combination needs to make sense. And then you kind of move on to the next layer of, can we get the math to work so that both parties can agree that they're getting a quote unquote fair deal? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think just to just to layer on, the qualitative pieces are where this always begins. And that can that can happen with bankers involved and it can happen with bankers uninvolved. There have been multiple deals where I've I've come in after, you know, founders have already gotten to know each other and they've already decided there's could be something here and they just need somebody, they just need advisors on both sides to the broker. There I mean I remember as an example here, there's while I was at City, we were representing a client that was a very, a very tech client. They hadn't been around very long. They had immense amounts of success, and there was a large public company that was looking to buy them. And I remember during one of the first diligence meetings we had, the two management teams showed up and one when and the you know the publicly traded company was in in suits and they were totally buttoned up and they were ready to go. And 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 our client shows up and they were you know wearing you know jeans and a t-shirt and were just you know again very very tech versus corporate and it was like right off the bat we were kind of like I don't know if this is going to work and lo and behold throughout the diligence process both parties came to the conclusion like okay the cultural fit isn't here so it could not be more important and, and to Sam's point I think it's a question of once once you do find that logic once once you do know okay we are there's a strategic fit here there is synergy you know we're going to be able to to tackle all these problems together that we couldn't tackle on our own it's the next step when you start thinking, okay, well, how do we quantify this then? And this is this is really why brokers can be very, very helpful because not only is it for someone to advocate for you, but it's also someone to kind of like be the bad guy, for example. So like at the end of the day, you're going to have to work together after this combination is there. And you, you want to be able to to play nicely and be fair, but you also want to make sure that you are getting the best deal for for your community and for your token holders. And so by having brokers be able to have those conversations on your behalf, it makes it a lot easier because there's a lot of times as bankers, you walk away and, and the opposing parties may be a little angry at you because you pushed a little bit for to, to get value for, for your client. 
but it allows the two parties after the fact to be able to continue to work together in a way that is you know, a lot more symbiotic. And so whether that be someone that's a third party brokering on behalf of both or whether that's multiple parties that are that are negotiating on behalf of, of another, it doesn't really matter. But I think it does it does help kind of solve that problem once the once the more qualitative stuff has already been solved and figured out. When I think about crypto MA specifically, I think that the team that you're acquiring, if it was really important in you know, traditional MA, I think it's even more important in crypto m a because you look at the ip being open source well okay so you could just fork the code so you haven't you're not buying the ip you know you're buying the brand that can have value you're buying you know maybe some 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 tvl or, or something similar but that that could go away pretty quickly so i think when you look at what you're buying in crypto m a making sure that the team is the right fit with your team and that there are frameworks in place to make sure that the team sticks around, that is going to be more important in crypto M&A than in typical M&A, even though it is really, really important in typical m and I'm so glad you brought the earnout part out. You know, we've seen deals where one project is acquiring another one that has tokens acquiring a project that doesn't have tokens and there's no sort of earnout that you know the team that is being acquired just receives a bunch of money up front and are I guess are expected to to stick around for the long term and of course that's rarely happens when someone wakes up you know super rich one day they're mo- less motivated so to that end like can you walk us through a good earnout how how are these things typically structured what have you seen work not work and and just giving general tips on how to incentivize talent over the long term yeah no i i think it's a really good question and and jordan you should definitely jump in here too but i think you can look at you know a few different constructs for incentivizing teams that you are acquiring to stick around you can you know, and these are all from just typical M&A deals and, you know, they've been done many times, right? You can have an earnout. So, you know, that's a construct where let's say you're going to buy a project for $200 million. You might say, okay, we're going to do $100 million of it up front. And then the remaining $100 million will get paid out over a certain number of years based upon hitting some milestones that might be revenue-based, that might be KPI-based. And there can be a lot of challenges there. For example, you know, there can be some perverse incentives to the acquirer might not want you to hit. I mean, they might want you to come really close to hitting your revenue milestones, but not hitting them exactly so they don't have to pay you a ton of money. So you can do an earnout structure. Another structure that you can do is you can take, let's say, you know, there's three or four people who are critical on the team that you're acquiring. What will happen in typical m and is they'll say, okay, let's say that one person was fully vested and they were going to make you know, $10 million from the deal. Well, the acquirer might put in place a structure, and this is all negotiable, where the member of the team will get $5 million. And then that incremental $5 million will be paid out, you know, a million dollars each year for the next five years based upon them sticking around at the company. So that's what is called a revest. And the third structure is incremental retention. So, and these can all be done in the same transaction. They're not mutually exclusive. But let's say that, you know, this employee that was going to get paid $10 million based upon the deal price and you're revesting 5 million of it, like I just said, you can also say, okay, but we're also going to put an incremental $2 million of retention on top of his $10 million. And that retention will get paid out each year for two years. So a million dollars each year. So those are some of the constructs that get leveraged in typical M&A. And I don't see a reason why they wouldn't be leveraged in crypto M&A as well. Yeah. One just quick thing to add to that is when you're thinking about a revest or when you're thinking about kind of any of these things, many times what's happening here is someone is getting paid a premium to what they already own. So that's why people are willing to 
to accept terms like that is not only is there, you know, sometimes a retention portion that that already bumps up the amount that they were quote unquote owed based on what they'd already vested, but also simply that in a situation where one larger entity is acquiring a smaller entity, there is a kind of an implied premium to what their stock would have been worth to begin with. And so from all of those different perspectives, and, and I think the bigger point here is like, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And it's all, it's just all negotiable. And so this is, again, I think goes back to our, our thing where it's important to kind of know what your options are and to think through like, okay, who are the most, who are the, the key factors here? How do we incentivize them the right way? How do we make sure that everybody walks away from this transaction and they're happy? So you have the right employees sticking in place, but those right employees or contributors, what have you, are being compensated for their work such that they're also happy. We actually did a podcast with the Ferrari guys back in the fall and sort of what we've been discussing around like whether the teams have synergies and the strategic elements, like it's something that we we talk about at length and I think was super apparent just by by speaking with them and and seeing some of the public forum comments, like just by definition, what they're working on, Faye with its sort of huge internal balance sheet and and Rari with the ability to to spin up all these new pools that that need capital to really bootstrap, like just strategically, that alone, the synergies were were pretty there. But I think more importantly, like the teams just really really knew each other and and worked well with each other and like wanted to to build other cool things on top of that sort of core synergy. So yeah, I think that's definitely like a major element here so far. And and yeah, as as you guys said, like probably at the end of the day, like in some cases, MA, it's like it's more about the end value that you're creating for everyone down the line, not necessarily like the immediate sort of short-term outcomes. But but yeah, just just riffing on that. No, I mean I completely agree with that. I think that that's that's something where it's important that token holders are getting fair value and that like people, but like at the end of the day, you know, you can nickel and dime on price, but if it's not the right partner and if the synergies aren't there and, and the the union isn't a, isn't a pleasant one, it's not going to go well for anyone. And so I think that's, I think sometimes people can get lost. I think there are, you know, bankers that can get like this as well in the traditional finance world where you get, you get lost in kind of the, the, you know, the dollars and cents and you lose track of kind of, you know, seeing the forest for the trees where it's like, okay, what, what are we actually trying to do here? So couldn't agree more that like if there's a balance to be struck to make sure that people are getting their fair value, people are incentivized properly, people are happy with the outcome, but you would much, much rather get a slightly worse deal from like a dollars and cents perspective and a much, much better deal from like a union synergy go forward perspective. And so it's, it's important to be able to kind of strategically think through and balance those two different objectives. You know, earlier in the discussion, guys, you mentioned who the folks sitting at the table are. It'll be the management team, the board, and maybe the the brokers, the investment bankers representing both sides. It's interesting to contrast the traditional table with, with who's sitting at the crypto table. And, and interestingly for DAOs, you know, there's really no concept of, of board. Typically, there's token holders and token holders can be the team, retail, and sometimes the large investors. But there's no real concept of a board. Every now and then you see committees, but those are kind of board likes, if you will. Having that sort of structure, what do you think? Does it make sense for, like, if there's an M&A deal happening, does it make sense for the large token holders to be sitting at the table with the team? Should a board be created to actually steward the deal and make sure both sides are getting a fair value? Who should be sitting at that table? Who's not sitting there today? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's something Jordan and I have have talked about a decent amount. And I don't think that we have the definitive answers here. I think what we would expect to see or hope to see is that you would be able to take some of the best pieces of typical M&A public company governance in terms of, you know, forming a board of directors or a special committee that can allow allow the company to move quicker and to make decisions quicker and not vote on every single decision, but also not have a disconnect between what the shareholders want and what the board of directors want. And I think that one of the most exciting things that we see about DAOs is the transparency of them and that these topics get debated in public forums, which which isn't always the case in, in typical M&A. And I think that what we would expect to see over time as the space matures and 
more and more DAOs come into existence that are at scale is some form of representative democracy, some form of token delegation to where the folks who are sitting around the table are beholden to the ultimate shareholders, token holders, more so than necessarily like a, a board of directors, like kind of what you saw with Twitter, where you know a lot of them owned basically no shares. And I think it's one of the, the great questions around DAOs. It's like, how does governance evolve such that you take the best pieces of what makes DAOs so cool and also making them able to run as efficiently as typical public companies do given the delegated nature of their government? Yeah, I definitely echo that. I think that the, the transparency is what makes this, I think, very different. And a lot of M&A deals, and this depends on the type of M&A deal, whether it be like a public tender offer or, or a, a private offer. But in many cases, there aren't, you know, a decision is made without a lot of the smaller shareholders being kind of involved. It's kind of like, okay, this, you know, we had our, you know, we all, all, all us, the board of directors kind of got together and we talked about this and we thought, decided this was the best, you know, the best route. And in many cases, especially in private deals, the board of directors is made up of very large shareholders. So in a lot of cases, if you were to take it to a vote, they were going to be kind of controlling it anyways. I think the key difference here is that in a Dow scenario, there isn't going to be a situation, at least in the go forward that I can see where that's ever going to happen. So even if there are, you know, the quote unquote largest shareholders or the whales of the Dow or what have you that are that are making the decisions, they still need to make it kind of in the light such that all of the smaller shareholders can have a say, can see what's going on, can be part of the process. So I think there are going to be a lot of similarities in the long term, but there are there are some key differences. And I think that transparency point that Sam made is a very crucial one. Yeah, totally. And and just to wrap this part up, like, you know, in terms of the folks sitting at the table, in the traditional M&A deals you've seen, how involved is management talking to large shareholders? Are they, you know, proactively socializing the concept of an acquisition, having informal meetings, getting buy-in? Or is it pretty distant between management and the large shareholders? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it depends, right? It's not, not every deal is the same. Largely depends on, and this is, I would say, a, a generalized statement. So this isn't always true as well. But like, in general, what I would say is the larger the shareholders or the, the larger portion they have, obviously, the more say they're going to have in kind of an ultimate vote to the extent that it came to that. But usually you have boards and you have management teams kind of working in unison. So they have, I would say, pretty regular conversations about kind of what's going on. So it's a little bit, it depends on the nature of the board, the nature of the cap table, the nature of the management team. But in general, you're, you're working in unison, you're keeping everybody in the loop. And generally speaking, I would say like the board member that represents the fund in a, in a private deal, for example, the board member that, that represents the VC fund that has the largest shareholding is maybe going to be a little bit louder in the board meetings. People are going to kind of defer to them maybe a little bit more. A lot of times, though, what you find, especially today, given kind of how important it is to be perceived as founder friendly, you see a lot of board members that kind of defer to the founder. So it does very, very much depend. I would say in general, though, it's done. You know, you have your board members and which represent your large shareholders and you have your management team, particularly your founder, and they are working in unison and kind of having conversations and discussions together. And that's generally how it works, particularly in a private deal. Yeah. And, and I think it's like Jordan said, it, it's very case by case. I mean, I think you look at a public company deal. And one of the deals I worked on at Catalyst was the proposed sale of NXP to Qualcomm. And we had reached an agreement with Qualcomm. This is all publicly available information for $110 a share per price. I'm pretty sure that $110 per share. I'm pretty sure that's what the what the number was. And there was a very long period of time in between the transaction being signed and the requisite regulatory approvals being received such that the transaction was closed. And in that interim period of time, the broader semiconductor, the broader semiconductor sort of stocks had, had all run up and NXP was a semiconductor company. So Elliot, an activist investor, took a pretty large stake in NXP. And they, along with a few other investors, started to basically agitate for a higher price from Qualcomm, and they threatened to vote down the deal and not accept the $110 a share. And they released a report where they said that, I think that this is the right number, is that the deal should have been done at $135 a share. 
And in that case, there was a lot of back and forth between you know, the board and the shareholders to try to figure out what price the NXP shareholders would accept. And the NXP and Qualcomm ended up making a deal for, I think it was $127.50 per share. And it ended up being a, a moot point because they never ended up getting the right level of regulatory clearance. So the deal didn't close. But that was an example where the board and the shareholders, you know, where there was a lot of communication. But in other ones where everybody's happy with the price, there's a lot less communication. Totally makes sense. And yeah, I think it'll be interesting to, to, to see how the media and, and comms side of things are handled here. Because again, like, like it, everything is open source. Um, a lot of these governing systems are, they have delegation, but it is like, like the people, the average person does comment on the discords, on the forums in a way that, yeah. And they can ha- really have a direct impact. Like people do, do care and, and everyone, people do see what the community thinks. One other question I want to tackle is, are there any hypothetical crypto M&As that you guys think would make sense or or think like just should happen because they would result in something new and interesting and would make sense for, for both parties? Yeah, I mean, I think our specific view on certain projects that might make sense to come together is sort of evolving as we spend more time in the space. I think that our expertise is more in actually getting deals done and structuring them. I think a related point to that, though, is what we find so interesting about this space is that you know anyone can go and propose getting an M&A deal done. You know, that's not, <laughs> that is certainly not how it works in a typical M&A style deal, right? It's more like the exact folks around the table are the ones that have complete control over if a deal gets done for the most part. Now, I think that a lot of the same principles will apply in that, you know, you would expect the core teams of two projects to have to come together and want to work together. But I think where we see the space going is like, there can be instigators of M&A who aren't necessarily involved with one project or another project, but they simply go and reach out to the different teams and post on the forums. And I think we'll see a lot of deals get done through that mechanism versus in sort of the typical world, you see a lot of deals get done through sort of like closed door conversations. So I think that it opens up a lot of possibilities to get deals done that didn't exist before. That's such a great point. It's, you know, I I look at the governance forums of a lot of projects and I think to myself, man, it would be so cool if companies had governance forums and, you know, just random shareholders who are maybe really in the weeds and really follow the early stage, maybe landscape would give management suggestions. Hey, here's, here's why you should buy this startup. Here's why it's super creative to shareholders. Here's why the price is right. Oh, I actually know the founder. I can make the introduction. That's the sort of stuff you actually see in crypto governance forums that I'm sure would benefit management teams and traditional companies too. So maybe crypto does innovate in some ways here. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think that might be that might be my favorite part about crypto. I mean, there's so many different things as we've gotten deep into the space and have started to spend more and more time here. Now we're spending basically all of our time here that are really, really exciting. I think there's the free market aspect of things. The big thing for me is the ability to remake the way things are done. And I think that there are so many traditional practices that we will continue to kind of use and adopt. But I think the ability to mold and mend them to meet the needs of employees and token holders today, I think it's just so exciting. And I think that is a huge one, which is simply that everybody gets a say and people get to see how decisions are made. And, and there are so many different ways to, to instigate and to make things better and more efficient. And so I think that open style of governance is just incredibly powerful from that perspective, but in an M&A context or otherwise. Not sure if you guys have thought about this part as much, but an idea that's been talked about a lot is the idea of protocols issuing debt. And there's many projects trying to help solve that in many different ways with many different products. But fundamentally, is this like, how do you guys think about this idea? And like, does it make sense? And if so, when? Yeah, I mean, I think this is an area of DAOs and crypto M&A that we find the most interesting. Because if you look at 
a typical M&A deal, there are three ways to fund it. You can fund it through cash, you can fund it through debt, and you can fund it through equity issuance. Now, what would the analogs be in on-chain crypto world? Well, funding a deal with cash would be funding a deal with stablecoin. It would be the, the same thing. You know, funding a deal with equity would be, you know, issuing tokens out of your treasury to the entity that's getting acquired. And as a result of issuing them tokens, they now own a certain percentage of the combined company. Now, financing something with debt, I think, is really, really interesting. And how could you do it? Well, I think you could look at collateralizing a portion of your treasury to lever up, so to speak, and do a deal. Also, to the extent that your project or your governance token had a claim to fee pools from the underlying protocol, that could look very similar to how you know lenders lend against EBITDA, and they could lend against you know recurring fees from your project. So I think that's really, really interesting. I think another interesting piece of this is if you look at equity deals being financed through existing tokens out of the treasury, who's to say that a protocol couldn't vote to issue additional tokens above and beyond what is sort of already in existence in their treasury? Like maybe that's a bad idea, but these are all things that are so exciting because they haven't been tried before. And we expect as M&A continues in the space for different forms of financing to be tried out until folks find out what the right way to do these deals are. Yeah, I think just to add on to that, this is something Sam and I spent a long time talking about, because as we think about kind of where we as quote unquote strategic advisors might fit in the space, obviously M&A is our bread and butter, and that's where we've spent the majority of our careers. But as it regards strategic advisory, there are so many other ways to be useful there. And so whether whether to Sam's point just now, thinking about tokenomic structures and what, what the impact that has on value, whether that's thinking about your cost of capital and you know how much you should be fundraising here, how many stable coins should you have in your treasury to make sure you capitalize properly on your expenses? How should you think about taking out debt such that you don't have to issue more tokens to raise those stable coins such, such that you can make sure that you're actually maximizing the value for your token holders? I think there are so many different ways this can go. And I think there are, there are a lot of TradFi analogs that can be really helpful. But then you know, to Sam's point, your point just now, like there are a lot of different ways in which crypto can really innovate how to build value. And whether that be through how you're funding or, or how, you're, how you're structuring, there's just a lot of different kind of strategic ways to go about that. And that's where I think in terms of, and this is just us individually, but the reason we spend so much time talking about this is like crypto is not a very, and it's still very nascent. It's not a very mature space. It's, it's unknown how, how much M&A there's going to be. But in terms of like strategic activity, there's, there's so much for that. So there's so much going on. Yeah. And I mean, I think that in a little bit unrelated, but you look at some of the analysis that we had done on, on Ferrari, and that was really just analysis based upon the market prices of the tokens as it related to calculating an exchange ratio. But if you look at a lot of the analysis that gets done in typical M&A, it is very based upon the company's financial profile. So what does their income statement look like? What type of revenue do they have? What type of profit do they have? What does their balance sheet look like? How much cash do they have? How much debt do they have? And as the space evolves, right, we would expect to see standardized reporting such that two projects are looking to do M&A. You would want to make sure you could do analysis based upon the relative financial profiles of each company. And if a lending profile, if a lending protocol trades differently from like a multiple on their revenue than a stablecoin protocol, that should be factored into the calculation of the exchange ratio or i.e. the price of the deal. So I think that's an area that we expect to see evolve a lot over time as, as M&A and just the space matures in general. One last topic-specific question on my end is, like, there's a lot of founders and, and crypto operators that, I guess, hopefully that are listening to this podcast. What, like, first principles 
sort of questions or, or thinking should they ask themselves if they have projects or partners that they would potentially want to work with in a closer manner, potentially even in M&A? Like, what are the, the key things that they should really figure out to see if it makes sense at all? Yeah, it all starts with fit. There are so many different situations where, like in my banker days, where we'd get involved and have just conversation after conversation after conversation with founders about who are the right strategic fits. So that's the most important thing is like, okay, as we think about where the puck is going in our specific space, what do we need? What kind of functionality do we need? What type of you know, talent do we need? Is it a consolidation play? Is that the most important thing is just simply gathering market share and paying for it? So there are a lot of different things. That's, that's the most important thing is like, okay, is there, is there a fit here kind of broader chessboard strategically? And then I think after that, it starts to become, okay, once you determine that there would be a fit here, you start having conversations, making sure that there might be a little bit of mutual interest. Maybe it starts with a partnership or what have you. But I think this is another situation where starting to just think about approach. And again, this can be done with or without an advisor, but to start to think about, okay, if this is the right fit and we think that this is the space, this is where we need to go. This is where the puck is going. Is it, this is the type of asset that we need or the type of team that we need to make sure that we're able to attack this opportunity properly. How do we go about doing that? How do we go about evaluating it? And so you start to do a little bit of an outside in, you know, what is, what are each of these different moves going to cost us? How do we kind of value that ROI? And then once you've kind of made a decision, you start thinking about how do we approach that? M&A is such a dance in, in a lot of different ways, but primarily in like a negotiating way. It's not just kind of a, hey, you know, this makes sense. Let's do a deal. If you're really trying to, to maximize value, you need to make sure that you go after the right target and you go after them in, in the right way such that you can make sure that you get a proper deal for, for your token holders, but also such that, you know, you, you make sure that they're, they're kind of into the deal as well. So I think that would be the big thing is just starting to think through the landscape, starting to think through the, where the puck is going, making sure there's strategic rationale and starting to outline what your approach would be to go about actually getting a deal done. Yeah, I agree with everything that Jordan just said. And I think kind of even harping on something I mentioned on earlier, you know, we expect to see like friendly deals really being the only form of deals that can work in crypto because, you know, in typical M&A, like you could go and you could buy a manufacturing company, you could, you know, acquire it hostily and everybody could hate you at the company, but you could just see that the asset base itself, like the actual you know, physical assets have more value than are reflected in the stock and you could just basically liquidate and sell. So that obviously doesn't exist in crypto. So there being strong, friendly, mutual fit from both teams is really critical. And then I think that's something that sort of drives M&A a lot of the times. You know, there's a lot of reasons that folks can articulate that they want to do M&A, but a lot of it is a bit of a kind of like manifest destiny and a race to be the the biggest company in the space. And, you know, doing deals can be a bit of an ego thing in typical M&A. And I'm sure that that won't be that different in crypto M&A. So yeah, I think those are kind of how I've thought about it. Yeah, that was a really good discussion on, on Dow M&A guys. And, and just M&A in general, I think I learned a lot and I'm sure listeners will too. But, you know, a more topical question now, we have two bankers and, and a really fun deal happening in the public markets now, Elon and Twitter. So I know you guys must have opinions. You sort of teased about it earlier. What do we think about that deal? <laughs> yeah, um, I, need a, I need to schedule another podcast for this one. I think on, the, on a high level, I think Twitter is such an interesting thing because it, it's, it's kind of become like a public commodity and not one that has been monetized very well and not very imaginatively. I think that there was, this is such an interesting deal because you've had, you've had people kind of circling Twitter for a long time looking at them as like a buyout candidate. I think that Twitter has not historically been a super attractive buyout candidate because they don't make a lot of money. In fact, they don't make money at all. And that's that's usually like the underpinning for taking a company private is like, okay, well, we're going to put a lot of debt on it. We're going to need to be able to pay down that debt and we need cash to cash flows to be able to pay down that debt. And it's just kind of a, it's a mathematical equation. So I think what what makes this Elon thing so interesting is that I think he sees a lot of the potential that, that just like everyone has always seen and why it's been an interesting target for a long time. And he also has candidly the wealth to be able to sustain losses for a period of time to be able to to really tinker with things and see see the you know the right way to make it. I, he's made some comments publicly about how he doesn't really care about making money on the deal, which I kind of go back and forth on whether or not I believe him. But like that's kind of my thought was that you were going to need someone that was incredibly a Twitter is going to be from my perspective, from a business perspective, going to be better handled in the private markets 
it allows you to do, to make a lot, do a lot of tinkering for the business model. Potentially you're going to lose users, potentially going to lose advertisers or whatever while you, while you mess around with the business model. And it's just easier to sustain in the, in the private markets. But also you needed somebody to buy it that was imaginative and didn't care about just printing money immediately. And I think Elon has proven for all of his words or for better or for worse, Elon has proven himself to be very imaginative and he obviously has enough wealth to be able to to sustain losses for a period of time while he's while he tinkers with things. So I, I I think it's fascinating. I could talk about this for a long time. Yeah, it is really fascinating. What's interesting to me is there has been sort of this like pretty binary reaction to folks around Elon buying Twitter. And, and I look at Elon buying Twitter. And to me, you look at, you know, Apollo was, you know, a company that was, you know, rumored to be looking at buying Twitter. And personally, I'd rather have Elon Musk own Twitter than a private equity firm that's just going to be pretty much only focused on profit and just ripping out costs as aggressively as possible. I mean, I would expect Elon to to focus on costs and to focus on profit, but not in the way that a private equity firm is. I think that's something that's interesting that I've noticed get talked a lot about on Twitter that I think that there's been a little bit of lack of understanding on is like, what happens to employees' equity in a take private of a publicly traded company? Well, it is a little bit case by case, but for the most part, you have common stock, you have vested options, and you have unvested options. And the common stock will receive cash at 54.20 per share. Vested options will receive cash at 54.20 minus their strike price per share. And unvested options will receive, you know, effectively cash that vests over time based upon 54.20, the deal price, minus their strike price. And I think there's also been some, you know, commentary I've noticed around, okay, well, like, how is Twitter going to retain employees now that they've been taken private and, you know, they, they can't issue equity? Well, they, private companies can issue equity, right? So employees that stay on or new hires will be issued equity that vests over time in Twitter, the private company. And if Twitter goes public or a different company acquires Twitter from Elon, well, then those shares will become liquid. And if they stay private, most companies that stay private for a long period of time will offer secondary liquidity programs for their employees to sell their shares. Or maybe there will be some sort of dividend component of the firm's profit based upon how many shares you own in the company. So. You know, that's a little bit of a sidebar, but sort of have noticed some confusion on Twitter around Twitter's acquisition and what it means for employees and their equity. I think this was awesome, guys. It was really wonky, but I'm sure this is basically the first DAO M&A or investment banking related podcast ever done. So I'm sure people will be fascinated by it. It's great to be on. It's great to chat with you guys about it. I think that we've been so stoked on just the reception in the community, you know, as far as people who want to talk about this, people who want to leverage some of the typical M&A frameworks to make crypto work as well as possible. And I think that that's where we see the space going is ideally you take sort of all the beautiful things about crypto and you layer in, okay, like what are these principles that have been done for decades in the traditional finance world, and, and let's use those to make crypto work as well as possible. So it's really exciting to feel like you know we're in inning one, we're on the bleeding edge, and we're all going to work together to try to figure out how to you know make this work best for the community. Totally, and in the same way that I think, yeah, we're all sort of rediscovering from first principles how organizations should be designed and and how they can run effectively, but also openly. I think we're we're figuring out like similarly how these organizations will partner and and work with each other. So yeah, really excited to to see hopefully many more examples of these these M&As in action like for founders that have have the hutzpah to do it and and to take a leap of faith and to go after it with a close partner. Yeah, there could be huge payoffs for everyone involved and 
encourage anyone that has thoughts or questions about this to, yeah, reach out to Jordan and Sam. I think they're some of the leading thinkers in this area. So, so yeah, guys, really appreciate you guys coming on and, and chatting about this. And hopefully we can all chat again soon when there's some more more live cases and, and examples to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you guys having us on. Yeah, thank you so much. This is great.